think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddler's in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Okay, so you know I love good wordplay. And Third Love is crushing their wordplay here. When you have a bra that pinches or slips or just isn't comfortable at all or is comfortable but isn't your style, you've got problems. <laughs> How excited was Third Love when they thought of problems? Well done, Third Love. I see you. When you wear Third Love bras, you've got no problems. They fix the problem of size exclusivity with their famous half cup sizes that revolutionized the industry by giving more options to find a bra that fits. And they fixed the problem of guessing what bra will fit you with their virtual fitting room and other helpful guides. A bra size chart, a bra 101 education section that's basically an FAQ for all your burning questions, and a ton of great reviews from real people. My sister just texted me, 99 problems. But pinching <laughs> isn't one. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. And to be loved, we need to be known. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things. Today, we are having an absolutely beautiful conversation with the incomparable brilliant, honest, funny, funny, and absolutely wonderful Hannah Gadsby. I have been wanting to speak to Hannah Gadsby for so long, ever since I laughed and cried and raged my way through Nanette. And then after that with Douglas. Which are her stand-up specials. Right, her stand-up Netflix specials. And we talk about all kinds of beautiful things today, telling stories and parenting and especially neurodiversity, um, which I know, sister, you've been wanting to to talk about on the pod for so long. I'm so thankful that she came on and shared so honestly and quite a lot um, about she has a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And I think it's so important to hear from women about that. Her story is fascinating. She went through really hard times. She was unhoused. She was in terrible situations a lot of her life and was only diagnosed when she was 30, basically. I think it was a year before Nanette came out. And a lot about her story has to do with living without this knowledge of herself, but just living in kind of an ill-fitting world. And it is a place where a lot of girls are. And it's just so important that people learn about this and the way that girls do not exhibit the same signs of autism that boys do. We live by a male model of autism. So that means they're looking for the same markers. That means when they're ultimately diagnosed, they're getting the same therapies. When in fact, the the girl brain with autism looks different than the boy brain with autism. It results in a lot of real damage. 42% of girls are diagnosed with another mental disorder instead of autism when they go to get checked. And boys are diagnosed two years earlier. So there's a lot of girls struggling out there with depression and anxiety. And like Hannah, not being diagnosed until they're 30, 
mm-hmm. and in her words, not haven't participated in life up to that point because they've been so sidelined by it. This conversation can help a lot of us to understand ourselves and give us insight into people we love. And importantly, it can help us reframe neurological diversity as differences, not as deficiencies. What Hannah shared about the exhaustive preparations she has to do to navigate everyday things, including this conversation today, was so important. It reminded me of something I read that explained how we all have a social brain, a network made up of multiple regions throughout the brain that help us navigate social interactions. And there's a new line of unpublished research suggesting that in girls and women with autism, they keep their social brain engaged, but every bit of social interaction may be mediated through the prefrontal cortex, which means that whereas many of us are able to deal with social interactions instinctively, for girls and women with autism, processing every social interaction can be the equivalent of doing high-grade math. So when she talks about being exhausted, having to prepare, how depleting it is, it's because every social cue is essentially an equation of long division, which is the labor neurodivergent folks do in masking to be in relationship and community. Masking is is mimicking, trying to replicate what other people are doing, but they're not doing it by instinct. I just am really thankful that she goes into that detail that for us, because I think it's really important as empathy for for people understanding the people that we love, that that's the work they're doing every day. The work that we take for granted, just getting a feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, and it's so important when talking about neurodiversity to actually be talking to people who are neurodivergent. And um, with that, we're going to give you Hannah Gadsby. Hannah Gadsby stopped stand-up comedy in its tracks with her multi-award-winning show, Nanette. Its release and subsequent Emmy and Peabody wins took Nanette and Hannah to the world. Hannah's difficult second album, which was also her 11th solo show, was named Douglas After Her Dog. Douglas covered Hannah's autism diagnosis, moving beyond the trauma at the center of Nanette and instead letting the world see the view from Hannah's brain, one that sees the world differently but with breathtaking clarity. The show was an Emmy-nominated smash hit and is available throughout the world on Netflix. Hannah's award-winning shows are a fixture in festivals across Australia and the UK. Her first book, Ten Steps to Nanette, a memoir situation, which I adored, is out now. We're talking today to someone who... I think on my list of top five humans, guests that I was dying to have on this show was right up there. Number eight. <laughs> and that is her. Her name is Hannah freaking Gatsby. Thank I you. Know. Thank you for the middle name. Yeah. I have one. Got one now. Okay. Hannah, your new book is so freaking wonderful. I... Abby knows I picked it up and then disappeared from my family for three days because I just thought it was so wonderful. I couldn't put it down. Thank you. Did I mess with your head? Um, yeah. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, it did. We'll get into that for sure. It did. I love the whole journey that you take us through with your mom. I love your mom. You love your mom. Everyone who reads your new book is going to love your mom. And when you were a kid, your mom was harassing you so relentlessly about some dirty glasses in your room that eventually you blew up, exploded, started cursing at her. And she was happy because she said, I just wanted you to feel. (laughs) And then later she said, after you got your autism diagnosis, I think you were 30. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Right? Spoiler alert. She said, I thought there was a lot going on inside you. You were like a tin of baked beans and my tin opener wouldn't work on you. Oh, yeah. To um, just give that some context, uh, my mom is a very distinct character. And in my my performance life, I impersonate her. So just to give that how it really was for me, she said this. Oh, yes. I always knew you were 
There was a lot going on inside you. You were like a tin of, tin of baked beans and my tin opener was broken. I just couldn't get in. And I said to her, I said, Mum, you don't like baked beans. <laughs> and she said, no, nah. no, I don't. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's a very funny lady, very funny lady. Um, but, yeah, I was a bit, a bit locked up as a kid. I didn't have great language uh, access. So, and also, you know, the, the feelings thing was, you know, because I'm not typical. Um, it's frustrating, I think, for neurotypical parents to connect with uh, neurodivergent children, um, but you get there. So what was that like as a kid growing up as you without a diagnosis? Uh, well, it's, you know, it's difficult. I think it might be worth, like, just clearing up what autism is. Great. Um, exactly, uh, you know, because there's a lot of, we'll just call it misinformation, um, and I think, so what it basically is, like if you want to boil it down to its, its bare bones minimum, is it's uh, what animates you, what, what drives your central nervous system. Um, in your, your typical people, it is um, sort of what is important. So what drives your behaviour is what is important and uh, where you are in the social tribe. In neurodivergent people, it is what's interesting, mm. and that can vary. Like uh, there's a saying is like, uh, you know, what's you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. The particular place that I am on the spectrum is I have I have uh, you know sensory processing disorder. Uh, that, now people can have sensory processing disorders and not be on the spectrum. That's that's important. Uh, distinction to make. and But where I'm and I do have that, I, I am turned all the way up to uh, no filters. My, I'm very heightened. Some of them cross over a little bit. My, my taste and smell are, are kind of sometimes indis indistinct. Um, and then there are two others, and vestibular and proprioception. Um, so I'm hyper aware of my space, uh, clutter, distresses me um and i have the uh, vestibular is i balance issue so i don't know where my head is in space so i fall over i have a lot of accidents i hurt myself a lot so it's just like this invisible disability that becomes very visible because mm. i break my leg i'm currently got a broken leg because i fell but didn't know that i was falling until it's too late and so my, I broke my leg. <laughs> it's fun times, good times. Um, <laughs> last year I had a total knee reconstruction. Same thing, was falling before, you know, and it was too late. Gravity gravity was always already my bitch. Um, <laughs> and so I had my knee busted. And the year before that I busted my nose open. And then it was a broken toe. Like I have, you know, if someone were to dig me up and, you know, after I was dead, like, um hundreds of years at time, they would dig me up and go, wow, I think we found a warrior princess, <laughs> you know, because my skeletal system is, you know, it's it's like got the marks of war, but really I fell over walking. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I'm playing the long game really. <laughs> um, so these these are sort of, you know, not knowing these things that, you you know, I have sensitivities was was kind of a lot as a kid because, you see people behave in a way and interact and socialize in a way and you try and do that and I would get completely overwhelmed or disassociate because, you know, I have a, an oral processing disorder so I, I, can't, I can't tune into noise very well and sort it out in my head. So it's very easy for me to just tune out and listen to people who are speaking English and go, wow, that's a foreign language. Mm. Um, so I have to focus really hard, which made learning very difficult. Uh, I was very lucky my mum made all my clothes, though there is a dark side to that. <laughs> Haberdashery abuse is real. But um, so <laughs> I never had like the tag issues because there was no tags on my clothes. Mm. Um, and she always used nice fabric in the, in the, in the texture quality, not necessarily patterns. <laughs> uh, no child needs to wear Harlequin sweaters. Um, 
and then uh, so th- th- there was there's a lot about my childhood that protected me from the worst of my ASD. I grew up in a really small town um, and I was part of a large family, so I had a ready-made social network. I just fit in. Um, but it was windy there. Like I grew up on a really small island and on the northwest coast and it's like it's famous for its fresh air. Who knew? I did. I just told you. And so it's really windy and so I was always confused because wind throws sound around. Mm. And so... <laughs> I was perpetually confused as a child. Mm. Like, you know, I, I was always given names like, you know, dithery or vague or dopey and, you know, these sorts of things. And I used to confuse people because on one hand I could be incredibly intelligent and then as dumb as bricks. And the older I got, the more people would read into that, the less adorable I became and people would see it as willful or manipulative because I could misunderstand what's going on and accidentally hurt people's feelings but it would be an honest mistake on my behalf but it would be difficult for people to believe that because you know on the in the next breath I could be incredibly intelligent um and not knowing and not being able to sort of contextualize all that confusion for me was 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 difficult mm-hmm. you talk about social situations like social and you describe it as thinking that everyone's just saying what they mean. <laughs> Tell, yeah. Fix this for me. You think everyone's just saying what they mean and that's how you're operating, but you realize there's an undercurrent of things that people are communicating in ways that you're not picking up. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. There's no subtext for me. Like it blows my mind um, when, you know, people are saying, oh, I was just being polite, but really, you know, the person they were being polite to leaves and they're like, hate them. I'm like, you were so nice to them. How are they supposed to know? <laughs> I didn't know. Now I was nice to the person I'm supposed to not like. Um, you know, and then, you know, you'd hear people deconstruct conversations and then they said this thing and that meant this. And I'm like, did it? I've learned so much. It's these so things. Much. And then, you know, once I was diagnosed, I was like, you know what, I don't actually care. You go talk amongst yourselves. I'm going to rearrange my furniture. <laughs> so was it was freeing? Was hey? it, tell me about, was it freeing? Tell me about getting diagnosed. Did it feel like something had been wrong with you that you didn't understand and now it didn't feel wrong anymore? It felt like its own thing? It felt like a, like an exfoliation of shame. Wow. Um, because once you understand that you have ASD, you understand that there's not a lot in your control. Like then it, it, it's less about being a, you're a bad person for not caring about small talk. And then you understand that it's not how you connect to other people. You, you know, it's not how you connect to the world. I connect through my passions and my interests. Um, and when someone who's neurodivergent wants to connect to the world and to people, it's through those things. It's like what is interesting. Uh, and neurotypical people, it's like what is important. Uh, and it, it's, you know, neurotypical people interact, you know, and connect face-to-face, you know, it's like direct. Um, whereas I'm, I'm into parallel play, you know, you want to get to know me, you go over there and do what you're doing, I'll be in the same room doing my thing and haven't we had a great time? Mm-hmm. Not if, not if, not if they want to talk about their feelings. Pod Squad, we know about you. You, like us, pamper your pups with clothes, fluffy beds, toys all the days, any little thing their goodest hearts desires. Why then would we settle for burnt, smelly pellets? in their dog dishes. Maybe you don't. Maybe you go with the farmer's dog like I do for Seamus and you reap the benefits of giving your dog real, fresh, healthy food. It looks like real food because it is real food. It's made with human grade kitchens with the same gentle cooking you'd use if you're preparing meals for your family. It's even fun signing up. You answer questions about your dog like, 
what health issues they might have, how old they are, what breed and personality they have, and more. You're not only getting fresh pre-portioned food, you're getting fresh pre-portioned food for your specific dog. And your dog may just have a newfound respect for their human too. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at www.thefarmersdog.com slash hard things. Food made in human-grade kitchens with the same gentle cooking you'd use if you were preparing meals for your family. Maybe more. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at www.thefarmersdog.com slash hard things. Well, you said when people come up to you individually to talk about your life or your feelings, you say, no, I do that in bulk on stage. Yeah, I'm like the Costco of, of, <laughs> yes. of human interaction. It's just like we're just buying bulk and just a certain line of products, just one of each. Um, and you, I don't, I've never actually been to Costco. That sounds like a nightmare to me. It is. Is Costco even a thing here? It it's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. So it's a really bad metaphor for me because I hate big shopping places. Uh, especially, yeah. Anyway, so, but we'll keep going with it. So it's sort of, um, <laughs> I've lost myself. <laughs> Hannah, my ex-husband when I was married used to sit down and say, <gasps> "No, sorry, I, know, I do know it's a whole thing." <laughs> used to sit down and say, "So I heard, I read that your depression is back. I read it in a magazine, and and he would try to talk to me about it, and I would say, but just read the article again. Like I just, <laughs> I wrote about, it. I did it in bulk. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. like I kind of get where he's coming from. There, it's sort of like <laughs> maybe he could have seen an advanced copy." <laughs> Going up. This is like, you know, maybe a heads up. Yeah, we've, we've altered that in our marriage, right? Like before things go to press, you know. Yeah, have the can I help you edit your bulk right. uh, declaration of, 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 of situation? Um, it, it is a tricky thing. Like I think you just have to work out, like with any relationship, I guess, um, you have to just meet people where they're at. Um, when two neurodivergent people communicate, it's fluid. When two neurotypical people talk to each other, it's fluid. It's just when uh, the two meet, it can be really, really uh, awkward, and I've experienced that often. But the thing is, I have learnt the ways of the neurotypicals. I have studied these people. Um, you know, like I, I prepare for, for neurotypical engagement. I know I, I'm trained in the art of small talk because I know it's important. Uh, the problem is, is the privilege of neurotypical people is they don't have to learn how to parallel play with neuro, you know, they, what has happened is you pathologize. It's like, you're not communicating correctly. Therefore you are less than you are not doing this right. You are weird. You know, back in the day, they'd burn you at the stake, you know, like mm -hmm. totally think I'm a witch. Like I think <laughs> that's what witches were, just neurodivergent women. Mm. I'd totally float if you threw me in the river. Mm. I That um, blew my mind because I heard you say, ultimately what I'm in the business of is to demand people be more aware of how and why they think, not what they think, because that's the reality of autism. You have autism, you have to think about how you think. That's what you do. And neurotypicals don't do that. They mm -hmm. just assume the way they think is right. I live with people who have some... Um, sprinkling? Neurodiv a sprinkling. A sprinkling. I, it's, it's, it's a veritable cornucopia over here. Yeah. And yeah. Carnival. Yes. And that thinking, you know, turning that lens on myself and thinking, no, this is how you're thinking about it. And that is why you're out of sync. Not, nece not necessarily there's something wrong or broken about the way they're thinking. And how do you think that people who want to balance that hierarchy as it's set up right now, who want to connect with people 
of who they love, who are neurodivergent, how do we begin to understand about how we think that is building those barriers? Um, I think a really great place to start is not to take things personally mm-hmm. um, and just move past it to the next thing. It's really difficult, I think, with the parent-child relationship um, because it's, you know, you don't have, children don't have the language yet. They're learning the language in order to, you know, then communicate uh, what, what issues are, what the problem are. You know, what might look like as, you know, a tantrum is probably a sensory overload and it looks like a small problem. Um, so, you know, a parent might go, well, you know, I, I'm taking you, I'm taking you seriously, but really that, you know, come on, this is, you know, like you don't like that cup, come on, clam down. Um, but what's happening is perhaps there's something about the, the sensory part of this process that seems insignificant to a neurotypical, but is, uh, you know, a war zone for someone on the spectrum. There's an expected, you know, bond that's supposed to happen with parents and children that neurodivergent children are always going to disappoint. And I think one of the first things is like, yeah, you got to stop taking that seriously. And that sent, you know, I mean, you got to take it seriously. Sorry, words are my gift. <laughs> Personally, like try and sort of meet people where they're at. Um, and there's always going to be a lag with children because, especially, you know, if you have difficult difficulty with language um it's going to take a while to to sort of get to that place but um in the adult world it it is difficult for women on the spectrum um men 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 get you know there are there is a certain place on the spectrum that you know is reserved for the great white geniuses and they're allowed to hyper focus on their special interest and and be terrible at interpersonal communications and they're held up as you know the best of men but uh it's it's much more difficult for women because of the expectations uh, in in the social network that we're supposed to uphold and when we fail that is a failure of character oh. um and it's it's really difficult to sort of convince people that this is like, I can't do it any differently. My brain is not wired to do what you want it to do. Now what? Mm-hmm. But we sort of get stuck on this, like, you're weird, you're doing this wrong, you, you know. And it's, I camouflage and mask a lot. Um, and that's an incredibly exhausting process. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like, so for this podcast, I had to prepare a lot. Like I had to listen to you. Not, it wasn't a chore. Love your podcast. Well done. <laughs> Keep up the good work. But it it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It was really active engagement with it because in order to talk to three people at the same time, um, I felt, you know, like I had to make sure I understood the way that you speak, the cadence, your pitch, not a, as a way of familiarizing myself. So when in the moment hoping that I could hear what you're saying, process it, and then turn it around with reciprocal speech takes a huge amount of effort for me. Mm-hmm. So what might look like, you know, you know, oh, it's just a casual chat is, is, is a marathon for me. And so then that depletes your, your, um, your energy levels. Um, and then once you, you know, I have meltdowns, I shut down mostly where I just stop communicating and that's hard for people if they don't want to believe that it's not personal. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's a good life. Love it. How but- you just shared is so, is such a gift. I mean, that that's so important to understand that the work that you put in to showing up in a space, I just feel like that's a, that's a gift for people to understand that. Mm-hmm. And thank you for doing that for this. No problems. Hannah, can well, you talk I mean, to us? Problems I outlined, didn't I? But <laughs> no problems. No worries. There's a lot of worry, but no, we're cool. Thanks. How does ASD affect relationships? Like what challenges and if there are gifts, what, what are those? Because you're in a relationship now. Nailing it. Nailing it? Yeah. The, um, before <laughs> there was a, there's a disconnect of, you know, when I mask, 
I'm fine. Like people are like, you're normal. You're a little bit quirky, but you're normal. Um, but you can't maintain that. That's exhausting. And so once you're spending your p- private time with someone, um, you, I begin to melt down. So t- I will be rea- reactive. I struggle to regulate my emotions when I'm under stress and I have a lot of trauma, big T's and little T's. So, you know, that also affects your um, ability to um, regulate. So, you know, I can, I have been, you know, you know, I can frighten people, you know, when I'm just trying to set I have devastatingly simple needs, but if those needs aren't met, then I, I, you know, can be snappy in a way that is not pleasant for other people. And so I was laboring under the, atten- uh, you know, the false idea that, you know, that perhaps I was borderline abusive, but what was happening was my boundaries were not being respected. Mm. And so I'd be a snappy Tom and they're like, uh, you know, when I'm fine, I'm very easygoing and like, okay. So it just seemed like I was uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Um, and one of the one of the really interesting ones for me is touch because it's overwhelming for me. And in a lesbian relationship, that what? What? <laughs> How are you supposed to do that? Um, it's all about the touch, isn't it? Oh, touchy-feely. And I'm like, oh, do we have to talk about our feelings again? Oh. And so yes like just a light touch like that's a universal standard isn't it for like uh you know intimacy it's like just a nice soft touch and i flinch you know like because that is is a really horrible sensation for me mm. so but not not knowing that people take that as rejection like it's like oh you you know you hate you find me repulsing like no just that touch generally lovely Um, but it's really hard to communicate that when you don't know. Even when I did know, I struggled for a while because it seems simple. It doesn't seem like much. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if people kept not touching me with a firm touch and just a light touch, I kept flinching, I kept flinching, it builds up and it just doesn't, it's a really easy fix, but the other person has to want to believe that I don't like a light touch. I don't know if I'm answering your question. You are. I have kind of a follow-up question, if you don't mind. I love follow-up questions, Abby, so thank you. So in terms of like neurotypical and neurodivergent, it would be because I think, I mean, I actually, since we had our pre-call, I'm like, I think I want to get tested because I just feel like we all are somewhere on a spectrum, right? And I think I've had learning stuff throughout my life that I want to just understand more. But I think it's the role, like what happens is, is neurotypical people want to like fix this part maybe in you. So like, let's go through a process, Hannah. Is this like common? Like, let's go through a process and work on this touch. Like, like exposure therapy. Yeah. Like let's, yeah. let's beat this out of you or pray it away. Like what <laughs> have that, has that ever happened in your life? Oh, and like, Oh, all the time. And I do it to myself before I was diagnosed too. So like, cause I'm a problem. So I have a problem solver's brain. So like, this is a problem. I want to fix it. And then, so like I experiment with fixing it. And this is like, this, you know, ends up, I've had so many major depressive episodes. It's, um, it's almost funny again. Um, because it's that, that overwhelm of putting yourself into these sort of situations that are overwhelming and, um, detrimental to your central nervous system and then you just can't cope and then it's like broadcast out um and i will say this abby like you know do if you feel like there's something that i'm saying that is connecting to you and i've been speaking in very vague and and uh, and specific terms here and it, it is a very complicated thing um but do get yourself checked out because if you are it'll be a game changer and i will also say this there is a very large cross uh, crossover between or uh autism and gender uh, ambivalence we'll call it ambivalence i'm going to call it gender ambivalence i love um, it you know cuz you know left to my own devices like whatever but people neurotypicals demand that like front on like what are you Mm-hmm. But inside of me, it's just like, well, it's just coming out how it's coming out, isn't it? Like you need to deal with your feelings on this. Um, 
but there are a lot of uh, non-binary folk, trans folk, um, genderqueer folk on the spectrum because I, I think there's something about the gender binary that does not make sense. Yes. It is illogical. It is what is important, not what is interesting. Interesting. Mm. Cool. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location. It's the neighborhood. It's so much more. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with state rankings and student-to-teacher ratios. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Why is it so hard for girls to get diagnosed? What is that about? We present differently. So the, um, the, the idea of what autism is is being based and studied on, you know, young men, um, white men, if we want to get specific. Like the, 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 the biases that exist in science um, everywhere in all, all, all parts of, of uh, science, medicine, research, um, you know, exist in this. So, you know, um, there are women of colour on the spectrum and a lot of them are running around not knowing it because it will be different again because women are expected to behave in a certain way and as a culture we've been trained to pathologise women who don't um, uh behave in the correct way in the way that it is a character flaw. It is you're going to hell, you're not doing it right. You know, it is that shaming. And uh, so if a, if, a, if a young boy doesn't interact with his peers and he wants to identify every single dinosaur there is, fine. That seems normal in a way. But if a, a girl was to do that, often their peers will identify it as wrong before a parent will observe it and they begin masking. So the masking thing in, in girls because you, you, you're watching your peers and you're like, they're doing these things, I should do these things. And um, so I think a lot of the time, not, not so much now, like it's opening up now, but I think women of my gen- generation, uh, that's what it's happening. Like you are, you're masking. And you find people in their 40s having breakdowns all the time, women on the spectrum, undiagnosed women. And it's similar to even our model of heart attacks, how women present very differently than men. And so women are dying of heart attacks because their symptoms don't match. Girls typically have a, often a different presentation than boys. It made sense when you said the exfoliation of shame because girls are kind of in this lost period of masking and not being identified. Then they're going through adolescence. Then they're being diagnosed with depression and anxiety as the primary reason for their struggles. And, oh, that's so hormonal. And then they spend their whole lives thinking their lives aren't working out because of their depression and anxiety and not they're depressed and anxious because they've never been identified and understood for who they are. Yeah, I I always was sort of, like to frame it as like I always thought that my I was struggling because I was depressed and anxious but then I realized I am depressed and anxious because I am struggling Mm. and so I never identified that I was struggling you know that Mm -hmm. that like I didn't understand that I wasn't looking people in the eye and you know because I would just watch their mouths move and like I wasn't didn't understand that I couldn't hear properly I can hear properly my hearing's as my mum would call it, 2020. That's tight, mum. 
but I do. I watch people's mouths, and that's I, that helps me put together what they're saying. Um, uh, and so it's it's a lot of compensatory um, techniques that I use to to get through that. But also, it's it's about how trauma presents in neurodivergent people um, is not the same. So getting therapy is fraught, particularly if the therapist doesn't know or you don't know. You know, so you know, there's like, let's talk about this thing again. Let's talk about this thing again, and that is so stressful. Mm. Like it is so stressful to be front facing uh, to these things because the the central nervous system is not cut out for that sort of onslaught um uh so it's it's things compound um and a lot of people women on the spectrum have complex ptsd because these these small traumas are just daily Mm -hmm. can you talk to us about your decision to stop using self-deprecating humor about your body or about your sexuality or about your gender, any of it, um, in comedy? Like how did that come to you and what does it mean to you? That's a long process. When I first started doing comedy, I was quite monosyllabic and, you know, I had to learn very, uh, you know, train very hard to modulate my voice and things like that. But, you know, I was very deadpan and just used, worked with people's assumption on who I was and then subverted it. But that... in order to subvert people's assumption, you have to play in that, on that field. You have to play that game. And even if you're trying to subvert it, you're still kicking that ball around. You're still kicking the stereotypes around. You're still engaging with stereotypes. And as I matured as a performer, I got bored with that. That was no longer interesting, even though it was important to Mm. an audience. And I began to feel very uh, disconnected. So I you know, about eight years into my career, I started going, This I don't make sense on stage anymore. And part of that was early on, you know, I do stand-up and then during festivals I'd work with like a gallery and do comedy art lectures. Now, we worked out I, can't, I wanted to do comedy art tours, but turns out I'm not a natural leader. So <laughs> I'd be going, right, we'll, we'll go and look at this painting now. And I'd go over there and I'd stand and everyone's like, oh, we'll go over here. And like I'm like no one's following me, so we work <laughs> quite quickly that I have to people have to be seated facing me, stuck, stuck. and then they'll oh you're actually quite interesting, all right. <laughs> but um, so I do comedy art lectures, and what I discovered there is I became what's known as a high status comic when I'm talking about my special interests because um, I'm passionate. I'm talking as an aut- you know, with my autism first. It's like, this is what I'm interested in. And, you know, people love these. They're really popular. And I love doing them and I felt good on stage and I'm like, this is me being autistic. It's me, like, being funny as a, you know, mm-hmm. without masking. And in my comedy, though, when I'm trying to explain myself and go, you know, like it's very hard for me to do observational humour because, like, I'm not looking at the same things everyone's just like you you know you know what it's like and people are like no <laughs> no what you're speaking of is not familiar so you have to do a lot of explaining um and then so in that I folded in a lot of masking and then that becomes confusing as you get older and more mature and you like who you are you're just like this is not a true representation of how I see the world or how I think people you know like I'm softening myself I'm you know, I'm apologizing. I'm like, hey, it's weird that I'm like this, isn't it? And they're like, ah, yeah, it is. Uh, and then eventually I just broke. I said, you know what? It's not. It's weird that you don't notice that people are different. And that 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 very much informed like my desire to stop being self-deprecating because I just wanted to be autistic. I didn't want, I just wanted to go, hey, I've got some stuff to talk about and whatever feelings you have about what this is, you need to get over it because I've got things to say. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the reason. The other part of the reason is, come on, like why, particularly women, why do we have to put ourselves down in order to speak in public? Um, It hasn't changed. I get still get all the hate mail that you, you want, like take your pick, 
Like men have been trained not to like women who speak their mind in public. It's it's a thing. We're not going to change it soon. We're going to have to grin and bear it. But I may as well grin and bear it being confident. Mm. Yeah. So I just want to talk about. Bet you do. You do. <laughs> I just want to talk forever, but we only have 15 minutes. So here's what I want to talk about now. Fast money okay? round. This is what's interesting to me is the journey that you and your mom have taken, but that in terms of the journey you've taken to figure out what comedy is to you. You had a moment with your mom where she was talking about not having regretted anything. And you said, is there anything maybe? (laughs) Yeah. Well, she said this thing. She's like, she's like, I'm really proud. I like them personally. I'm really proud that I brought my kids up without religion. I really am because I've I've raised five children with minds of their own. I'm really proud of that. And I'm like, well done you, Mum. You pat yourself on the back. Good on you. And I was just sort of like she was having a feel, like a moment and I missed it because I think we we know why. And so I said, oh, yeah, well, what, what parenting decisions do you regret, Mum? And there's a laundry list, I thought she'd go. And we talk like that a little bit. Like I'll say to mum, mum, you used to scare the bejesus out of me when I was growing up. She said, good, I didn't like you that much. Like, And it's like it's it's funny, like we're being funny. It's quite Australian. I think this horrifies some American audiences when I say that. It's like, it's fine. Um, uh, but um, she wasn't going there, so she was being thoughtful and then, she just said a thing that blew my mind, and it was the seed that that came to my, became my show, Nanette, where she's like, Ooh, the, you know, the thing I regret is that I raised you as if you were straight. <gasps> and I'm um, like, I just like because when you when you the coming out story is all about will people accept you, and Mum just did all this work, and I didn't know. She mm. went way back, and she went to a place that not many people are at now she's like pushing 80 and she's like oh I shouldn't have assumed you were straight and I wasn't your friend and I should have been she said I knew I'm just committing to mum's voice here she's like I wanted you to change because I knew the world wouldn't and she's right the world didn't change but she's like and I was just sort of like because when you when you're coming out, it's overwhelming. Like you're just ready for the rejection. It's all, and it is all about you. It has to be all about you. But the telling of our coming out stories, telling of a lot of trauma stories, we are freeze framing on that moment of trauma, and we don't then have a lot of public discussions about these moments because mm-hmm. uh, we live in a you know a punishment society. Like we don't give room for restorative justice. Let's call mm-hmm. it. And the art history informed that part of it for me. So mum said this to me, but also because I was thinking a lot about proto-Renaissance, I made these connections. <laughs> and this is the gift of autism. Like you make connections. You, you, your brain has more connections going on. Mm. Um, and so in art history, I don't know if you know this, but it's a, it's a myth where people sort of like, oh, back in the day, not everyone could read. So they learned from paintings and pictures. And that is not correct. They learnt through oral storytelling. Like stories would be told. Um, stories are familiar. And the art played a purpose of freeze-framing the stories into familiar parts of the stories, points of the story. So, uh, so you know, the most famous one, I guess, is Christianity has been frozen to the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a big story, but that is... The freeze frame is on that moment. Mm-hmm. And that is a big decision. Like, because from that freeze frame, you can leverage a lot of shame mm-hmm. and uh, guilt because that's like, that's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some great stories in that whole narrative, but that freeze frame. And that, you know, in mythology, it's the same thing. It's like a lot of f- stories are freeze framed at the moment. A woman happens to be nude. That is a that is a strong freeze frame there. Um, so, so art history has this tendency to freeze frame, uh, and, and we and I think generally our storytelling 
sort of circles trauma um, and then solves it in a whodunit kind of way and then we don't have stories that then talk about, hey, I went through trauma but I'm all right. Mm-hmm. Like this doesn't define me. Fuck me up for a bit, sorry for language. But, you know, like older women have these stories where they can put into, connect, you know, context mm-hmm. in their entire life. Like they're not, you know, and, and I was just missing those stories in the public sphere. I know so many old ladies and they're just like, yeah, yeah, he's an idiot. They're all idiots, but they're fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to put that breath into my own story. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, in my comedy, I made a lot of comedy out of the way my mum reacted and it was a way of like, pave the way to for my own healing to be able to make fun of it you need the jokes but it then you know it stops our ability to talk about the evolution on on both sides um and we're obsessed with trauma points Mm -hmm. like as as in our storytelling culture like news is nothing but scattergun trauma porn like we always know what's going wrong, but we never know how stuff resolves. And I think public, you know, displays of uh, resolution are important and missing. Single-handedly impacting our environment for the better, that's a daunting task. But it's possible, and there are incredible people who are living proof that setting your mind to something and really being passionate about it will bring about change. The Goldman Environmental Prize is the world's foremost award honoring grassroots environmental activists. Each year, the prize honors six ordinary people who are making an extraordinary impact for the planet. If you look at this year's winners, you'll learn about Marcel Gomez, who exposed the links between a company's meatpacking practices and illegal deforestation, which led to a major boycott of that company's products. Amazing. You'll learn about Andrea Vidalre, whose relentless leadership resulted in California adopting its most ambitious emissions reduction regulations in history. And there are more amazing stories to discover I can't imagine stories more important than these. Find the stories of this year's prize winners at goldmanprize.org. Can I read you one quote that you, from your book that you said about your family? Sure. That I think is so important. So weird if I said no. Yeah, it would be weird, but I would, I would honor you. We would respect it. Yeah. Pass. This is about your mom having a very hard time with you coming out at first. Um, But you said our family unit had been collateral damage, nothing more than pawn porn for the juvenile and toxic political games being played out well above our heads. That is the shit that ruined my life. Mm. Yeah. And that's happening now. Right. Right now to particularly trans kids now, because we're not talking about their humanity. We're talking about whether or not their gender is right. Like we're talking about whether we can solve gender right now. And that's, it's a political point. I see it, it's doing my head in. Like I, it's breaking my heart. It is excruciating to watch. We as adults are making the same mistakes. The way we speak about these subjects are in terms of like, I am right, you're wrong. It's just like, can we just, can we just agree that we don't know what the hell we are mm-hmm. and just, just give people what they need. Mm-hmm. And and not pathologized, but this is like it is happening now as we speak. The trans kids are being politicized. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is exactly what happened to me. Some families are reacting badly to their humanity, and I think your point is so important that those families, those parents, are pawns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they it's have not- been duped. They have been tricked. They have been preached to by higher powers that have taught them to fear their children. Yeah. Yeah. So how is it going with your mom now? How does she feel about your new book? Did she read it? <laughs> so I'm, it's all lies. I'm not going to read it. Like she, 
She's a bit scared. And it, fair enough. Like, you know, fair enough. It's her story too and I've got complete control over it. Um, so <laughs> she's good. She's great. She's both my parents are good. I don't know. Like I, Dad was really sick when I was going through the, um, the net of it all. And one of my first, you know, one of my last edits of the book, I think I forgot to tell people that he's fine because it's like he's dying of melanoma and he got some experimental treatment and it turns out it was a good experiment. I mean, who knows, you know, I don't even know what it was. could be wombat blood. We don't know, but he's fine now. Um, but it was like my my mum and my dad are chalk and cheese and the thing to say that explicitly in the book and he's just so accepting. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, good one. But mum, like, has a reaction. Then she goes away and then she has to think about it. And then she has another reaction and then she has to think about it. So that's what's happening now. She's having to think about it, Mm -hmm. having reactions, having thoughts. That's why we love her. Do you feel she called it? Well, you called it in the book. And by the way, you did say your dad was okay. There was one little part. I I had to add that in. They're like, we need to know. Oh. There is no resolution there. I'm like, oh, yeah, but he's fine. They are facts. It was a very small sentence, just so you know. Yeah, I didn't. didn't. But it was there. Um, Wasn't important. (laughs) (laughs) Or or interesting? I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't interesting. Your mom, you called it pinning, pinning butterflies. Yeah. The freeze frames of people's relationships or lives. Do you feel scared of that now that you have that understanding that telling stories about other people is kind of pinning butterflies I'm just wondering if you feel scared about your work going forward because I do I feel scared about telling stories about people suddenly look I think I think uh it's important to just tell stories um I think it's important to leave flexibility in the weave um the problem comes when people hold you to things and go you're not allowed to evolve like that is the receiving of the story. And it's just like, but I think there's an enormous amount of healing that goes into the craft of, of, of a narrative. And that's what I do. I spend a lot of time working out how to tell stories. And through that, I learn what part of the story is important to me. And, you know, working on stage a lot, my stories evolve, um, sometimes to their detriment. So, you know, my coming out story, for instance, was, was designed to make people laugh. And that's where the issue was Mm. because the punchline was enough. Mm. Um, But I think telling stories, I'm not frightened. Um, I have a, I operate on the premise that it's okay to recede into the background and no one remembers who the hell I am. Mm. Um, And I just work on the craft and then everything else will work itself out. And with that... Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all of the work that you did. No problem. I would just like to acknowledge that I don't think I answered many questions directly, but I said a lot of information after you stopped talking. (laughs) And interesting information and important information. Eh, Time will tell. (laughs) We won't listen to time regardless. But please um, also thank Jenny. and. just again, thank you, Hannah. Absolute pleasure. Keep keep it real, guys. Keep on trucking. Okay. You're the we best. Will. Thanks. Thank you. See ya. Thank you. Okay. What I want to say for our next straight thing today, it's not really a thing. This is a next straight idea. Okay. I one of the things that I connect so much with Hannah on is that her major sensitivity and her um she has incredible soundries. Okay? <laughs> Sounds are important to her. She has offered me strategies about how when Abby <laughs> sneezes loudly, I can be startled because there's no way I cannot be startled. I and? will always be startled. Yeah. But Hannah described for me a way that I can decide in my own self what's next after the startle. I don't have to become furious after the startle. <laughs> I didn't know that. Sister. I didn't know that. Like she told me that when Abby sneezes, okay, so let's, let's play this out. Okay. Here I go. Okay. Sneeze. Hachoo. Okay. Well, 
that's not how it sounds. Mm-hmm. But it's not the way it sounds. That's no. a that's a false representation okay. of the Abby sneeze. Right. It's so, an Olympic gold medal sneeze. I'm people. just being polite here. It is. <laughs> it's like an alarm has gone off in our home. So let's say I'm doing the dishes or something, and that sneeze happens out of the blue, and I immediately, my entire body reacts. I my body freaks out. You're I am going to freeze. startled. You go I am startled. You're going to freeze. You freeze. Hannah taught me after that, I can just go with it. I'm startled. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I'm startled. Ooh. Like there's an energy of startled can just go to like, I'm on a roller coaster. Like I don't have to then become utterly furious that this thing has startled me. So yes, so like transmutation of the energy. That's right. It's like I can't control go with it, she said. I can't control my startle, but I can control what happens after the startle. And that comes with time. So I'm gonna work on it. (laughs) Okay. I have no idea why I started to tell that story, but here's the next right idea. Okay. This is just one quote from Nanette, which daily. I think about it. Okay. And I just feel like it's very important for all of our pod squatters, many of whom are sensitive human beings. <laughs> like all of them are here. Okay. Listen, Hannah Gadsby says when people say I'm too sensitive, I feel a bit like a nose being lectured by a fart. <laughs> That's. We're just going to leave that with you. Okay? Do not let farts tell you that you are too sensitive. Wow. Okay? I'm so impressed that you just said fart twice. I know. I said it. I don't say fart. I don't she say fart. Say it. But I'm saying fart, fart, fart because it's so important to the message. Yeah. Okay? I have um, another thing that I had a moment when she was speaking and when she was talking about how her mom said I'm so sorry that I raised you straight. Mm. And I think that that's something that we can think about and be like, oh, that's right. But then she talks about how when she was growing up, right, you know, she'd be playing by herself. She'd say, I don't want to go to that birthday party. I don't want to. And, and as a parent, it's it, but you're sad. You're sad if you don't go to the birthday party. And she's like, I'm not sad. And I think sometimes I, although I would never raise my kid with the assumption that they're straight and look at them that way, I think that I can very easily raise my kids with the assumption that they're neurotypical. Oh. Mm -hmm. So if I see a group of kids playing and my daughter playing separately, on her own, I feel intense pain Mm. and I project on her loneliness Mm. and sadness Mm. and um, separateness. But that's raising her like a straight kid. That's Mm, that's raising her like a neurotypical kid. I just really got that from today's podcast. I want to let my kid be exactly who they are without projecting what the world will see them as. Yeah. I just want to see them through their own eyes and their own experiences. Amen. That's the next right thing. It's like what Hannah's mom said. I wish I had been your friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Meaning like, I wish I hadn't been a fixer of you. I wish I had just been a friend to you. Mm -hmm. So beautiful, y'all. All right. And the thing that she, her mom said, I thought the world wasn't going to change. So I thought I would have to change you. It's like Mm. we get so scared for our children and we bring to them the very fear that we're afraid that the world will bring to them. We bring it to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sister, thank you for that. So good. We'll see you next week on We Can Do Hard Things. Love you guys. Love you. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side.
is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs>